I want to say a hearty welcome. Welcome to Crosspoint Church. Welcome family. Um, I want to tell you, even being gone last weekend and praying for you as we're, uh, boy, that was just a whirlwind week. Um, but I know there were several in here praying for me and my daughter and the other guys that were helping us drive out here. Well, I'm going to tell you, the whole time I was praying for you all. <laughs> so I missed you. You're our family. So it is so good to see all of you here. Um, I want to say if you are new with us this morning, as I just reiterate what Mike was just saying, we are so glad you're here. I hope that this service will be a blessing to you. Uh, our prayer is this, that you would be overwhelmingly welcomed by this church family, that you would be fed by the Word of God. That's our prayer, that when you come here, you walk through these doors, you open that Bible, that you are fed the Word of God. That's our prayer. And then our prayer is the same as I just prayed for all of us corporately, is that you would grow. There's some in this room that need to start on this relationship with God by faith. My prayer is that if God's brought you here, that that was no mistake you walked in here today. And, And that you would start this relationship with God by grace through faith. Faith in the Son of Jesus Christ and His shed blood on the cross. For those of us who've come, come to Christ by faith, that this would be a place where you can grow. That's our prayer. So I want to just say a hearty welcome. We're definitely not a perfect church, but by God's grace, we're a progressing church. We're, we're growing in Jesus Christ. So jump right in. I want to say again, welcome to CPK. Kids, it's so good to see you. If you fill out those handouts, uh, I've got a special treat for you afterwards. Uh, so see me, I'll be around this side probably, or maybe in the back floating, or I might be hiding, do a little hide and seek. We'll see how that goes. But I've got something special for you kids, and even some adults. I know some of the adults would like to participate as well. <laughs> but anyways, I hope that you are ready to receive the word this morning. This is Palm Sunday. This holds amazing significance to the body of Christ. Palm Sunday is is technically the the start of what we know as the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to take a review of the Passion Week of Jesus Christ, and we're going to start in Psalm 118. So would you turn with me to Psalm 118? Like, man, that pastor doesn't even know his Bible history. Did the Passion Week start in the Gospels? Well, yes, but I want to lay a foundation in Psalm 118. So let's go to Psalm 118, and we're going to kind of set the foundation for what's happening in the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. I'm going to set it by saying this as well. Talking of music, and maybe you can go back to that previous slide. You're thinking, what in the world is this? (laughs) All right. Lyrics are amazing things. Music and lyrics are beautiful. They work together so beautifully to help us remember things. Um, You know what it's like when you get a song on your mind, just even a phrase of a song, and you sing it over and over and over again for like three days straight. You know what I'm talking about. You wake up in the middle of the night and you're just singing that song over and over again. You're like, oh, wow. Even though this may be an amazing song, I cannot get this thing out of my mind. Then after four days, right, of just trying to work this thing out of your mind, as good as it may be, You finally relieve yourself of that lyric. Then what happens? You go to work and someone at work singing it. And you're stuck back on the rut, right? The lyrics are amazing things. They stick in our brains. Music is powerful. Lyrics are amazing. Um, I love, we we sing a lot of worship songs around our house. And they're songs to me that I love uh, to sing regularly. I'll be walking around the house singing something like, Here I am to worship 
Here I am to bow down. That song we stuck in my mind for hours sometimes. Something like, I'm no longer a slave to sin, to fear. I am a child of God. Some of you know that song. What a powerful song that is. That'll be stuck in my mind for days sometimes. Songs like what was sung a couple weeks ago. I love talking to Mike G about this. His little grandkid walking up to the guitar and playing it and saying, joy, 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 joy down in my heart. That's what we sang a couple weeks ago. Even little critters, these lyrics stick in their minds. I mean, good worship songs like, my chains are gone, I've been set free. Amazing grace. You know what I'm talking about. Good lyrics that stick in our minds. We're taking theology and attaching it to song. That's not new. I'm also going to not paint a picture that we're all hyper-spiritual here, right? (laughs) We know there's songs that come to our mind that aren't necessarily tied to theology or worship. Uh, at our house, occasionally we'll play um, the Wii. You know, we're not, we're not a huge video game family, but that'll happen. The kids have time limits, and sometimes even the other night we had uh, an intense game. Hannah jumps in. As soon as Hannah jumps in, game over. The intensity level just skyrockets when my wife jumps into the gaming thing. But we play for a little bit, and uh, when we have an intense game of Mario Kart, look out. Lyrics are bound to happen. We're talking about na 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 na. Hey, hey, hey. Yes, they sneak their way into the family. Where that's not like a regular song we sing, but somehow that lyric makes its way into our family. We're talking about we are the. Yes, it makes its way into the we game. Um, I mean, there's a whole list of songs, lyrics, and you think, where did we hear that? That's not like part of our regular diet of songs. We're singing it, sitting at the table the other day, enjoying the sun coming out. That was awesome. And the beauty of this, and someone started singing, I feel good. Na, 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 na. <laughs> That's in our minds. You know what I'm talking about? All right, so we have a daughter, and our daughter Eva. When she runs into the room, look out. Someone's going to get hurt. Things are going to fly because she's so, she's our live wire. She runs into a room and shows up with a grand interest, I'm going to tell you, probably on a daily basis. Do you know what song we sing when she runs in the room? She came in like a wrecking ball. (laughs) I'm telling you, not a good song. But somewhere along the line, we've picked up this lyric. Uh, Same Eva who, as a two-year-old, I don't know where she heard this, but we did quite a bit of traveling in Colorado, up and down the mountains, especially when we were working through the health scenario of Hannah and the elevation thing. We were up and down, up and down. Well, after, she's two and a half. We put her in a car seat one day, and we're starting to drive, and all of a sudden, she starts breaking out. We're not gonna take it. No, no, we ain't gonna take it. We're not gonna take it. Two and a half year old. So sometimes in our minds, we think that lyrics have to be all godly in our mind. Somehow, I don't know where she picked that up, some commercial. It's definitely not a song we sing regularly around our family. But somehow she picked that up and she sang it. Lyrics are powerful things to us. Music and lyrics. This is not a lesson on lyrics, okay? This is not a lesson on music. But what I want us to do is travel into Psalm 118 thinking of song and lyric. Thinking of the fact, if you could advance the slide one, that would be great. That in Psalm 118, these are lyrics 
that had been sung in some form for very possibly 1,500 years. More organized through Ezra, it's more possible that they were sang on a regular beat basis in worship of Yahweh for about 500 years. So when we're talking about lyrics, we're talking about a song that almost everyone in the family knew very well. When we're talking about Psalm 118, we're talking about the last psalm of what's known as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. This is a dynamic grouping of psalms that were sung at all three of the feasts, particularly the Passover. Why would this hold significance to the Egyptian uh, in the Egyptian scenario with Moses? Because through Moses, through the sacrificial lamb, through the blood on the doorposts, what happened? The death angel passed over. This is a daily reminder for some Jewish families, especially during the times of the feasts. During the times of the Passover, Psalm 118 was sung over and over again. So what I want us to do this morning, it's not going to be a complicated sermon, I want us to go through and see some of the major elements of Psalm 118, and then what we're going to do is to see how it shows up in the Passion Week. You ready for this? I put our thinking caps on. Let's go to Psalm 118, and let's see how this is designated, how this is by God's grace, through the Holy Spirit, how this comes across on the pages of scriptures, starting with these key concepts. First of all, in Psalm 118, you find highlighted, as Mike just read, God's love is enduring. Here it is. I'm not going to put all the words up here because we'll run out of room, and they'll be really tiny words. So if you would just look in your Bibles with me at verse 1. Here's what was sung on a regular basis. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And I want us to just picture this as very possibly being like a responsive song. So in, in, in sort of like a worship scenario, when even people around the Passover meal maybe picture the dad and the family starting off the song and the rest of the family repeating, uh, saying the next phrase. So per- very possibly the dad would say something like, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And the rest, all the little kiddos and the mom would say, for his steadfast love endures forever. The dad would say something like, let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, and all the kiddos would say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear Yahweh say his steadfast love endures forever. You see what's happening here? We're highlighting the steadfast enduring love of God. So you know what's important in a psalm when it's said at the beginning of the psalm and at the end of the psalm. This is the capstones of the psalm. Well, look with me at verses 28 and 29. Same concept. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Then repeating verse 1, here we find verse 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Some of you enjoy uh, the languages. This is a word that has amazing um, priority in the Old Testament. It's the word hesed. This is his kindness. This is his enduring mercy, his everlasting love. This kindness is seen right here all through this chapter. This is the foundation of an ongoing, growing relationship we have with the great creator and sustainer of all life. Is his ongoing kindness, his 
chesed. They say it with a little bit more of a chesed. <laughs> this is his kindness. Well, we could go on forever with these verses, but I want us to go on and see the next highlight of this chapter is this. God will triumphantly rescue his people. Okay, so this is a theme obviously found in the Exodus. If you remember in biblical history, God has rescued his people. This is a theme that works its way through scripture, though, and there's quite a few of these verses in Psalm 118 that talk of this. Uh, I'm not going to read through all of them, but we can start in verse 5. Let's just start in verse 5, talking of God's triumphant rescue of his people. Verse 5 says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. This is rescue. This is God rescuing his people. Let's continue. The Lord is on my side, verse 6. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 7. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Wow. Very possibly written by Moses as he's ready to approach Pharaoh, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these dynamic words. If you look with me, kiddos, it's in your Bible, if you don't have that, you can look on with your parents there. Verse 8, look at verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust man. Verse 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Well, let's skip down to verse 14. I mean, we can just keep going through this. Maybe this week you can spend some time on your own reading through the rest of this chapter. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my what? Song. There it is. We have lyric here. He's my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Skip with me down to verse 17. I, I'm, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. I hate skipping verses, but skip down to verse 21. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Look with me at verse 25, because really this is the dynamic prayer of the whole psalm. This is what kids would think of when they think of this psalm. This prayer right here. Verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. This is the prayer of each Jewish family as they came to worship at the three feasts and primarily the Passover. Here's the prayer. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Now, in their minds, they're thinking more physically, um, nationally. You can understand that. God, bring salvation to us from, particularly in this context we have here in the Passion Week, from the Roman uh, dominance in their life, the oppression from the Roman government. Save us. Save us from this. Take your rightful place in this world, God, with your people. Um, here, here's a couple things to consider. Well, I'll just take one of them. As you think through this psalm, as you think through your biblical history, a lot of times when we talk about God as our rescuer, a lot of times it doesn't happen really hardly ever or very rarely does it happen in the timetable that God's people think it should happen. Do you understand that? But I'm going to tell you when it always happens is exactly when God wants it to happen. God, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all life, has it happen exactly when, it, when it's time to happen. All right, there's so much more that can be said about that. But let's go on to another theme. Here's another thematic, thematic element of Psalm 118. Look with me at verse 22. The stone that the builders, what? Rejected. And I want to just pause on that word for a minute. Because in this song, we have all of this exuberance and all of this excitement about rescue. And so people are focusing on the fact that, God, you're triumphant. God, you will rescue us. God, you are loving. 
And we come here to verse 22, and even clearly, as we're going to see in the New Testament in just a minute, clearly the leaders of Israel would kind of fly through this verse. They wouldn't sink in. Ironically enough, I shouldn't say ironically, in God's sovereign plan, guess what verse is highlighted over and over and over again in the New Testament? This verse. The fact that the builders rejected the stone, but the stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. Uh, several years ago, and I know several have been here, been there from here, um, Israel, standing at the Temple Mount. I don't know if any of you have gone to the West Wall, and then you stand between the West Wall, at the corner of the West Wall and the Southern Wall, and you stand there, and there is this enormous rock. Uh, it's, a, it's a marvel of how King Herod, as he rebuilt this, how he got it there. Even to this day, people are like, I don't know how that got there. But there is an enormous cornerstone. It's beautiful because this is the foundation of all of this that's built. And actually, it goes way down below as well. A couple years ago, well, when we went, Hannah and I, we had the opportunity to go in the rabbinic tunnels. So you're in, on the western side, and sometimes you can get into this tunnel and go underground unto where, basically where through history you would have had uh, worshipers of God on ground level. And as you're walking through these tunnels where you have people praying all the time, because this is the, pretty much the closest they could get to what used to be the Holy of Holies. They're praying there and sticking little prayer cards, a little piece of paper in the wall. They're, they're, they're praying passionately down there. As you walk through this, you come up on this massive stone that's a little off center. It's got a little curve to it. As we're walking through there, our guide stops us there and he says, isn't there a verse that comes to mind? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In a very practical way, he said, I'm not going to say dynamically that this would have happened, but very possibly Jesus would have stood right next to this stone when he was teaching and saying, listen, there's rejection that's happened. Where does this mindset come though? It starts for us in this song, actually it starts way back in Genesis, but it's reiterated in Psalm 118. And this is how it's reiterated. The stone, verse 22, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How many times do you wake up in the day singing, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made? It's a beautiful day, but I'm going to tell you in context here, this is talking about the day that Jesus sets it right. The dynamic day when the cornerstone is set. The, ones that were the one who is rejected is now made the chief cornerstone. Okay, so quickly we're seeing some of these concepts come out in Psalm 118. Can we go to one more theme? Let's look at verse 25. Are you all with me here? We're hanging on here in Psalm 118. We'll get to the New Testament in just a minute, and we'll be there for about three more hours. <laughs> just joking. <laughs> all right, all right. So here we are in verse 25. He says this, we find this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Verse 27. The Lord is God, and he has made his what? His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal or feastal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Oh boy, there is so much involved in this. But I want to just say this, that what's happening here is a, a, a massive theme that God's light will shine through his rescuer. 
We're looking for a rescuer that God promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. This is the whole history of your Bible. We're looking for the rescuer. We're looking for the rescuer. Where is this rescuer? We find themes all the way along that there will be a rescuer. In this passage, we clearly tie it to a person. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this rescuer will shine the bright light of the creator of the universe. All right, so you following these themes? Lest you're probably like, well, why in the world are we in Psalm 118 so much? Well, here's why. As I mentioned before, this one psalm show, shows up all the way through the story of the Passion Week. I mean, you can turn your hand out over, over, and so you thought you were getting out without homework. <laughs> you have homework this week. I'm going to tell you, this is a blessed homework. I, I love doing this as a family. And I know there's some discrepancies on when exactly some of these days happened, whether it was thir- Wednesday or Thursday. This is a very tangible way, uh, uh, you know, of, of looking at the Passion Week. But I would encourage you, go through and read Every day, read the passages that involve that day in the Passion Week. So, during the Passion Week, Psalm 118 comes alive. But before we even get to that, let's review what the Passion Week looks like. If you could advance the slide, that'd be great. Here's what the Passion Week looks like before the Passion Week. What happens before the Passion Week? John 11. And by the way, this is the important foundation of the Passion Week. We're talking about when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Sunday all the way to when he gave up his life on Friday, possibly Thursday. We're talking about that Passion Week, a lot going on. But what happened before that in your Bibles? Remember what happened in John 11? John 11, what does Jesus do? Kiddos, you probably remember the shortest verse in the Bible, right? In English, right? Jesus did what? He wept. Why did he weep? Because his dear friend, one that he loved, had died. And now Jesus walking up to the scene in Bethany. People giving up on this Jesus. Saying, Jesus, what's your problem? If you really cared, you would have been here. Jesus now weeping and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me, though he were dead, yet he will live. When does this happen? Brothers and sisters in Jesus, this is very possibly just over a week from when Jesus Christ himself is resurrected from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. So this is like pre-conference, all right? This is like the preparation for the Passion Week. Then what happens? Sunday. I'm not going to go through all of it, but Jesus joins the crowds coming from the north, all the crowds coming from the north down to celebrate the Passover. Jesus comes in there with his disciples. Jesus starting in Bethany, where it's kind of his base camp. He starts in Bethany, and what does he do? He sends two of his disciples to go get what? Yes. Remember this? The colt? The foal of a donkey? Why? To fulfill what Zechariah 9.9 says. Jesus sees this all happening perfectly. Jesus now on Sunday, which is what we commemorate today, travels into Jerusalem in a triumphant expression. This is awesome. We're going to see more of this in just a minute. Then we travel to Monday. Monday is really an impressive expression of the power of Jesus Christ and his passion. Enough with this facade religion Enough with fakeness and hypocrisy. He travels into the temple and he clears the temple. Do you remember this story? This is him saying, you want to know what true religion is? Look to me. Don't be looking at all this false hypocrisy. Look to me. Then we find Wednesday or Tuesday. Tuesday is a key day when we'll see Psalm 118 in just a minute. What happens on Tuesday? Tuesday of the Passion Week. Jesus Christ takes time, different places around Jerusalem to teach. He's teaching. 
He's ta- teaching the false prophets uh, or false teachers, well, the elders and the, and the priests of the Jews, who he's prior called hypocrites because they're not attaching themselves to him, who, who live trying to make themselves look good, but they're Pharisees and, and, and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, all of these guys are really good at finding loopholes in their relationship with God rather than getting to the heart of their relationship with God. Jesus spends time teaching the Pharisees, scribes, teaching, this is huge, teaching the Gentiles. I love that because guess who that includes? Us. Jesus spent time teaching about himself to the crowds. Then we find this day Wednesday. In, church his, uh, in, in biblical history, it's kind of hard to see exactly what happens in Wednesday. Very possibly on Wednesday, nothing happened for Jesus. Very possibly on Wednesday, Jesus spent time on his own, as we'll see in other passages in scriptures, praying because he knew what was about to come. We know the Garden of Gethsemane prayer, but I think on Wednesday, Jesus spent some time with his friends. Jesus spent time on his own with God, praying close to Bethany, preparing himself for what was about to happen. Thursday in the biblical account, what do you find happening? On Thursday is where we find Jesus celebrating the Passover, having a Passover meal. If you remember in the book of John, what happens in the upper room? We find Jesus amongst these arguments. If you could advance that slide once, that would be great. Jesus, among all these these disciples that kind of think they're big stuff, what's he doing? He's laying aside his outer garments, he's taking up a towel, and he's walking over there and washing his disciples' feet. He's serving them. I'm not going to say dynamically that this is an expression of Psalm 118, 1 through 5, the steadfast love of the Lord, but I'm going to say Jesus Christ showed love to his disciples. Jesus Christ showed service to his disciples. Then what happened? You remember the story? Jesus Christ with his disciples go over into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where Jesus Christ prayed and and sweated as it were great drops of blood prior to Judas coming and betraying him and turning him over. You remember the whole story. What happened that night illegally, heading into Friday? What happened is this. Jesus went to trial. Jesus suffered. We'll look at just in just a minute. Jesus suffered. Jesus on Friday died. Jesus died for the sins of mankind. This is what we know as Good Friday. There's a lot going on on Friday. There's a lot going on through this week. This is the Passion Week. Now, are you ready to see a couple occasions where Psalm 118 shows up in the Passion Week? Well, ready or not, we're going to do it. So let's go and see some of these ways that Psalm 118 show up in the Passion Week. I want to start with this. Jesus embraced his role as the triumphant rescuer. In Psalm 118, this is the second series of things, but the the huge theme. And if you want to go in your Bibles to Mark 1, or sorry, Mark 11. There's a lot of ones up there. It's Mark 11, 1 through 11. We're not going to spend a, a significant amount of time here, but maybe five, ten minutes, ten minutes looking at how Psalm 118 shows up here in this passage. This is, as we just talked about, the Sunday of the Passion Week. This is the triumphal entry of known as Palm Sunday. This is why we have palm branches here and in the back. This is recorded, and I love this, this is recorded by in every one of your four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find this expression, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. As we just talked, Jesus sent two of his disciples to find a cult with large crowds flooding into, and I want us to put ourselves in this scenario, large crowds flooding into Jerusalem to worship at the Passover. Jesus Christ himself comes and the word spreads. Jesus, the one, and this is important, the one who raised that guy in Bethany from the dead, 
This is the one that did all these miracles. He's coming. The word spreads. So you have all these people entering into Jerusalem as is prophesied in, in, in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9, we find Jesus entering on the colt. Not only do we have this group of people, John 11 and 12 share with us a couple other crowds. There's a crowd from, is, uh, from Jerusalem itself who know the reputation of Jesus and they're ready to be liberated from the Roman government. These are people that are ready to see something happen nationally. Then beyond that, you have a lot of the guys going like this. They're standing on the outsides. These are guys that can't stand Jesus. These are men who within the week want to see Jesus, and they're saying this in the passages, they conspire to see Jesus killed because Jesus doesn't fit in their plan. This Jesus doesn't make it into the way we see things going. Even though Jesus has dynamically expressed himself as the Son of God, they don't see it happening quite that way. When we look at this passage, we find Mark 11. And you know what? I'm going to withhold reading through all these 11 verses, but I want us to go to verse 7 of Mark 11. Would you go there with me? Kids, you can look on with your parents if you want. Verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches. Uh, According to John 12 specifically, they were palm branches. Verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, guess where that phrase just came from? Psalm 118, 25, here it is. Save us, we pray. If you look at the Hebrew and Aramaic, you know what it says? Hosanna means save now. Save us now. And they're crying out, we pray, save us now. Psalm 118 shows up right here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord, the kingly line of David. So what's happening here? Jesus is entering in on Palm Sunday. This amazing story. Jesus is riding on this colt. And in a massive statement of national pride, what's happening here? The Jews are surrounding Jesus, waving the palm branches, throwing them on the ground. Which, in our minds, I want you to think just, I mean, it doesn't correspond exactly, but I want to think of a, of a July 4th parade where flags are handed out to everyone. And you just see these flags waving. That's what the palm branch was in this culture. You didn't have flags to hand out to everybody, but if you wanted to share your national pride and wave your national pride, you would find a palm branch. This was the expression of national pride. And so you have people all around waving these branches and throwing them on the ground and crying out, Hosanna, save now, directly from Psalm 118. And guess what? The kids were piping in too. Why? Because they knew the lyrics of that song. They knew it very well. They'd be singing this. They'd, they'd been singing this every Passover that they knew since they were a little critter. Singing, save us now, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, 22 and 23. This is the passage. To continue on in the story, we find that Jesus walks in with them. He embraces this recognition. Sorry, just a minute ago I said 22 and 23. It's 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. But I do want us to to look at verse 22 because this is massive in the discussion. So what happens on Sunday is Jesus enters in and everyone cries out the lyrics that are on their minds. Lyrics that they know well. 
save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, then I want us to travel through this outline a little bit of Psalm 118 and see kind of the forbidden aspect, the one that people run by in the story of Psalm 118. And it's that one word that I paused on. It is the word that starts with re and ends with jection, right? Rejection. Rejection. This is one that the people of Israel, we don't want to hear about that. We don't want to focus on that part. But what happens in the story? Remember how we said on Monday, Jesus enters into the temple, clears the temple. Remember what happens on Tuesday? Jesus spends time teaching, walking through his purpose with the people. If you look with me at Mark 12, I want to illustrate this. And I will go ahead and read this whole section. Because Jesus, through parable, illustrates perfectly what people didn't want to acknowledge with the rejection. The title of the sermon this morning is The Necessary Rejection. Jesus promotes this on Tuesday, teaching the people. What does he say? Look at verse 1 of Mark chapter 12. And Jesus began to speak uh, to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. By the way, I'll just share this from the onset. Every time a servant is mentioned here, we're talking about Old Testament prophets, okay? So we can kind of put that in our minds in the story of the parable. Verse three, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse four, again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse five, and he sent another and him they killed And so with many others, we're talking about these prophets in the Old Testament. Some they beat and some they killed. Verse 6, he had still another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. In other words, this heir doesn't fit in our plan. We got to kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Verse 8, and they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Verse 9, Jesus says, what What will the owner of the vineyard do? In other words, God. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others. So much significance there in God's holy plan. Now verse 10, this is Jesus to all of those listening, especially those who've rejected his plan. What does he say? He's like, yo, haven't you heard? Because it's been said all week long. Haven't you heard this? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What has Jesus just done? This hymn, this psalm that's being sung all week long, Jesus is saying there's an aspect of that psalm that you don't want to hear. It's the aspect that Jesus needs to be rejected. Rejection is necessary for victory to happen. Jesus brings this out um, through illustration example and parable, Jesus is explaining that although it's exciting to focus on triumph and victory, we love excitement, we love victory, we love thinking about how amazing this triumph is, guess what? Rejection has to happen first. And in this parable, Jesus specifically ties rejection to death. What's happening here? Jesus is telling them in a prophetic way, I will die I will be rejected and die. I want us to look at two other uh, primary themes in Psalm 118 that come out here in the story of the Passion Week. We'll make this brief. Where do we find um, this next section? If you look in John 12, 
27, 36. Actually, I'll just read it. We'll save some time from turning there. I want us to find this. Remember how one of the themes in Psalm 118 is Jesus is the light from God? You remember that? Guess what comes out in the Passion Week? In the same day of teaching, John tells us of this in John 12, 27. Actually, I'm going to go down to verse 35, and I'll just summarize it with this. So Jesus, he's teaching now. I love this because who is he teaching in John 12? He's teaching the Gentiles, the Greeks that had come searching for Jesus. What, what do they say? Brothers or, or men, we would see Jesus. That's what's said in John 12, which by the way, that's on a lot of pulpits. We would see Jesus. And these Gentiles say, we would see Jesus. And what does Jesus say when he has a chance to teach them? Here's what he says. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. How many times does Jesus say light here? When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. What's happening here? Jesus bringing out another element of Psalm 118. I can't dynamically say this is exactly what's on Jesus' mind, but in context here, where Jesus is constantly rehashing, bringing up the, 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 the psalm, Psalm 118, the lyrics of Psalm 118, I can't say that, I mean, that Jesus wouldn't have had this light in his mind. The light of Psalm 118, and here's what Psalm 118 says again. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. That's what Psalm 118 says. And what is Jesus saying? I'm here. The light is here. So if you'll notice in your handout, the first one of Psalm 118, the first thematic element of Psalm 118 that comes in the first section of verses in the last part, is the section that focuses on the love of God the hesed, the kindness of God, the enduring love of God. This is something that these people loved singing about, gave them hope. And I want to just lastly here prove that through the Passion Week, Jesus lived this out. Psalm 118 verse 1 says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. He is good. For his hesed, his steadfast love endures forever. At the end of the passage, we find again, I'll just read it one more time. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. This whole event, what I'm talking about, is the whole Passion Week. All the way through, what do we have? We have expressions of God's enduring love for his people. We find the expression of love through Jesus' service at the Lord's Supper to his children, to his disciples. But ultimately, what do we have? I put up there on the screen a passage that in my mind brings it all together. No, it's not in the Gospels, but I think the Apostle Paul summarizes it best. What does he say? But God demonstrated his love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Do you, do you know the verses surrounding that? This is a verse we learned when we were in Iwana. Here's a couple verses surrounding it. Verse nine. Since therefore we have now been justified or declared righteous by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God in other words we couldn't even stand before the holiness of God but now because of the blood of Jesus Christ and because we have a declaration of holiness we now can stand in the presence of God verse 10 of Romans 5 for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled, we're bought back, we're brought together. Shall we be saved by his life? 
more than that, we also rejoice in God that through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Wow, these are power words in theology. Redemption, reconciliation, justification. What's happening here? Paul is telling us, you know what? When you were enemies of God, just like we looked at a couple weeks ago, Jesus was rejected so that you could be received. Jesus died so that you could be made alive. What's the key observation? I want to wrap this up with just a brief key observation, tying this all together. And here's what it is. If we take something home, if you could advance that slide, it'd be great. Although anticipating a triumphant rescue, Jesus reminded God's people of the necessity of rejection. Think with me again. Psalm 118, people coming to the Passover, so stoked about celebration. What is the significance of the whole Passover? Blood had to be shed. Rejection had to happen. Jesus taking all of these people in the day of teaching, Tuesday, and saying, yeah, hey, you're celebrating really well. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to highlight a part of the story that's not so exciting. It's the rejection of the cross. In order for victory to happen, the cross was necessary. The rejection of the cross was necessary. Think of this with me for just a minute. This rejection, the cross, was a sign of humiliation. The Roman cross was a sign of humiliation. It was, it was a tool of torture and disgrace. This one writer says it this way. The punishment of Roman crucifixion was chiefly inflicted on slaves and the worst kind of criminals. Crucifixion was considered a most shameful and disgraceful way to die. This is rejection. This author says this, crucifixion was incredibly painful. Hence the term, have you ever thought about this? Hence the term excruciating. The practice of scourging appears to have formed uh, a part of this. As with other capital punishments among the Romans, the Romans used a whip scourging called uh, a flagrum, which consists of small pieces of bone and metal attached to a number of leather strands. Some of us would know that you've known this probably as a cat of what? Nine tails, right? The skin on the back was ripped to the bone for scourging. Death by Roman crucifixion was a result of the whole body weight being supported by the outstretched arms. When nailed to the cross, there was a massive strain put on the wrists, arms, and shoulders, often resulting in dislocation of the shoulders and the elbow joints. The rib cage was constrained in a fixed position, which made it extremely difficult to exhale and impossible to take a full breath. The victim would continually try to draw himself up by his hands, his feet, and allow for inflation of the lungs, enduring terrible pain in his feet and legs. The pain in the feet and the legs became unbearable, and the victim was forced to trade breathing for pain. The length of time required to die from crucifixion could range from hours to a number of days going through that. We know in Jesus' case, it wasn't a number of days. Brothers and sisters, but God showed his love to us. While we were sinners, Christ did that for us. He was rejected for you and for me. So what? So what? I mean, just as we wrap this up, how is this going to make any difference as we walk out of these doors in a bit? And I would, I would present this question. If you'd mind advancing that slide, thank you. Have I embraced the necessity of Jesus's rejection for me? What do I mean? Have you embraced the cross, the rejection of the cross for you? Have you believed in Christ's sacrifice a theme that goes from the Old Testament to the New is this. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Do you realize that 
that you couldn't do it on your own, you cannot do it on your own, in order to have a right standing before God, the perfect sacrificial lamb, Paul calls him the Passover lamb, Jesus. Jesus had to be sacrificed for you. The only sufficient way to be justified before God and reconciled to God is the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ. The only sufficient way to have your sins forgiven is the blood of Jesus Christ. If you have placed your faith and trust in in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, if you have done that, I would first say, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, let today be the most amazing day of your life. Put your faith in this Jesus who died for you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, would you carry on with this second question? If you could advance, that would be great. In our minds, I want us to think Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Would you bear your cross? If you have come to Jesus, would you realize that Christ expects us to bear our own crosses of suffering and rejection as we joyfully joyfully follow the Savior into eternity? Would you carry your cross, even if it does mean rejection from a culture around us? It's not going to accept this plan perfectly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that it's, it's foolishness to the people around us. Will you embrace your cross? Will you carry your cross proudly? Why? Because Jesus carried his cross sacrificially. I would ask one last question. Do you realize that Sunday's coming? <laughs> Brothers and sisters in Jesus, Friday happened, but Sunday's coming. Next Sunday, guess what we get to celebrate? We get to celebrate Jesus coming out of that grave and sets all of that right. And we could go back to Psalm 118 and we can say, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So this week, as you think through the days of the passion, as you carry the burden of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he walked through the rejection of Israel, the rejection of people that loved him, as he walked through ultimately the rejection of his heavenly Father for our account, will you realize that Sunday's coming? <laughs> Those people who on Sunday prayed, praised him and said, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, save us now. Within less than a week, they had rejected him. Almost every single one of them had turned their back on him. But guess what sets that all right? The resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This week, will you take some time on your own thinking through the struggles, the necessity of rejection, realizing Sunday's coming?